Whenever we observe Lord's Supper, the sermon is not the high point of the service. It is the observance of communion. It's coming to the table. And so if you're tuning in a little bit late and you're not aware of this yet, we are observing communion. So if you don't have elements in front of you, please take the time to go ahead and grab those. You can get whatever you have available. If you've got grape juice, great. Cranberry juice, fine. Apple juice, great. Wine, fantastic. Whatever it is that's available to you, go ahead and get that. Uh, you may not have the traditional communion wafers. That's okay. It doesn't matter. Now, you can choose whatever kind of bread is available to you. There's some things I would say don't use this. Uh, we've got a picture of a cupcake that was given a little bit earlier this week. Can you put that up on the screen? That's a coronavirus cupcake. Don't use that. Okay, just go for go for some plain bread. Go for some crackers, something else, chips. I'm just using some plain, uh, just a, the end of a piece of bread, just so I can identify with where you are. Yeah, we've got communion wafers here, but that's not what's important. What's important is us together as a church body remembering. And so let me just tell you, before we get to communion that's coming at the end, let me go ahead and warn you. Some of you are going to experience God for the first time. Some of you are going to experience him for the first time in a long time. Some of you, in a very fresh way, are going to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I know that that's a pretty tall, watch out, here it comes, sort of a statement. But I, I really believe that for some of you this is going to happen. And, and I'm glad that it's going to happen because I know where some of you are coming from. And uh, you need to experience the Lord. You need to know the Lord in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through. We can take that cupcake down. Yeah, that's that's annoying. Uh, for no, hey Deborah, love you, appreciate the the the, the gift, but yeah, no. Uh, some of you, you know, seriously, you you need to experience the Lord, and and I think this this can happen for you. But I'm going to need two things from you. First thing I'm going to need from you is your undivided attention. That is to say, I don't want you multitasking. Don't be running back and forth to the kitchen. Don't be folding laundry or texting back and forth with some friends and all the rest. Just give your attention. If you're going to experience the Lord, he needs the attention. And the other thing that I'm going to ask of you is just really, really simple. I want you to remain open. I want you to remain open-hearted as opposed to hard-hearted. I want you to remain open-minded as opposed to closed-minded. I just want you to be open to the possibility that, that you could actually experience God in a powerful way right here, right now, wherever you may find yourself. And some things you just got to remain open to in order to experience them. Some things, in order to know them, you've got to do some personal experimentation. You just have to participate. I've always wondered what was first, the chicken or the egg. So uh, a couple of days ago, I ordered one of each from Amazon, and I'll tell you next week how it turns out. Uh, no, actually, that's not that's not really true. Okay, here here's the deal. Some things, though, you do actually really need to personal experience in order to know them. It's true. One of my favorite movies is Dances with Wolves, and there's this scene where uh, Lieutenant John Dunbar gives some sugar to the Native Americans. And for the first time, they've tasted what pure sweetness is, and they love it so much they, they can't help but put as much as they possibly can into their coffee. And that's how he wins them over as friends because they've tasted. You can't explain 
pure sweet to people unless they taste of it or switching it up a little bit. Suppose you have this friend and she's never seen the color red. How are you going to help her to see the color red if she's never seen the color, especially if she's blind? She's never seen any colors. How are you going to explain this to her? I, I suppose you could say color, the color red sounds like a referee's whistle, and that would be helpful, maybe, kind of, but that's not the same as seeing red. You could say the color green is like the, the smell of freshly cut grass, and that may be true, but that's not quite the same as seeing the color green. You could say that the color blue feels like a, a feather on your fingertips, and that maybe is an approximation, but it's not the same as actually seeing the color blue. In order to experience something in terms of your vision, you have to open your eyes. You have to be given sight. It's not that the other senses that we have are invalid. It's just that they don't, they don't always bleed over into the other senses. If you're going to see something, actually see something, you have to open your eyes. And what the Bible would have us to understand is if you're going to see God and experience God and and see that he's good, you've just got to remain open and you've got to remain focused. And changing the metaphor just a little bit, there's also taste that's involved. You can go over to uh, Psalm 34 and the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is this understanding that he has to be experienced. You have to, you have to take him in. Uh, there's another psalm. The psalmist goes on elsewhere and explains it this way. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. So before we come to the table, before we taste of the wine that represents the spilled out blood of Christ, before we partake of the bread that represents his broken body, before we get here, I want to help you to experience for yourself how good the Lord is, that he really does taste good, that he really is majestic to behold. And you're saying, well, how in the world am I going to do this? You don't understand. I've had a bad week and I've never experienced it before. How are you going to help me to experience the Lord? Here's how. I'm going to help you get into the story of someone else. I want to help you to get into the head of someone else who actually experienced God in a powerful way and it radically uh, impacted him. The man that we're going to get into the head of is a, a man named David. Now, David experiences God, and, and, and if you can see through his eyes what he's seeing, and if you can taste through his mouth what he's tasting, maybe it will awaken in you your own personal experience with God today before we move to the time of communion. But two things, okay, stay focused, stay involved, engaged, and please remain open, and this could happen. All right, with that, I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Uh, as a church, typically, we stand just for the opening reading of the text, out of a recognition that God is present, that he is speaking. Even though we're not always listening, even though we're not always perceiving, God is always present, and he's speaking to us, and he's speaking to us in a powerful way through Psalm 63. It's one of my favorite passages. A Psalm of David, when he was in the desert of Judah. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. 
My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. May God bless for his word. You may be seated. Now, before we get more directly into the text itself, let me give you the setting. This is important because I recognize some of you are thinking, my setting is not very good right now, Ernest. I'm not at church. I'm not gathered together with other people. I, I've had kind of a difficult week. I'm sitting up in my bed. I'm sitting on the couch right now. The house isn't even all that picked up. My setting's not great. And frankly, this sheltering in place business is getting old. And I, I've been sort of in a dark place. I've been a little bit sad, a little bit down. And you're telling me that this morning I could actually experience the presence of God in my life. Really? Yes. And here's why I say this. You're not actually in a bad place. You're in a really good place to experience God. You say, well, why do you say that? Look at where David is when he prays this prayer, when he writes Psalm 63. You know where David is? It tells us right there in the opening verse. It's a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Now, here's the question. When was David in the desert of Judah? Well, the question is, is, is even better put, when was he in the desert of Judah when he was the king? Because in verse 11, it says that he was king when he writes Psalm 63. It, this is not when he's younger. This is not when he's running away from King Saul. This is while he's king. When is he in the desert of Judah as king? And it's a desolate place. When is he there? Here's what we know from the Bible. He was in the desert of Judah when he was running from his son Absalom who was taking the throne and wanting to kill David. It's a really bad situation. Let me give you the full picture here. David has been on the throne for at least 30 years. He's on, in the latter part of his 40-year reign. And things have been going pretty well. He's been working hard. He's been fighting battles. He's been advancing the kingdom. He's been collecting a lot of material which will go into the construction of the great temple of Solomon. But as wonderful as things are, as as productive as David is, as purposeful as he is, as swimmingly as things are going, as bright as the future may look, and it seems to be getting brighter, something's going on that's not so positive. His son Absalom has been coming to the city gates for, for quite some time, trying to bend the ear of people who are disgruntled with the king. You see, when you're the king, you're going to make a lot of decisions that a lot of people don't agree with, or at least you're going to make enough decisions that enough people are not going to like what you're saying or thinking or deciding all the time. And so it's rather easy to find people who will listen to your complaining. That's Absalom. He goes to the court that would meet every morning at the city gates, and he would basically run down his dad, run down the king, and second-guess his leadership. And he was effective at doing this. The Bible tells us that he turned their hearts. That's the way it's put. He turned the hearts of the people. And he was good at it. The reason he was good at it is he was young. And the Bible says he was extraordinarily attractive. The Bible says that. The Bible also says he had very long hair, flowing long hair, kind of like Chris Hemsworth or Jason Mimosa or Fabio or something like that. And so when you're really good looking and you come across well on camera and you don't actually have a real job because you're royalty and you're willing to devote 100% of your time to running down leadership, you're going to get a following. And so it looks something like this. Every day he would get on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and he would just talk to people and he would say things like, if I were the leader, this wouldn't be happening. 
If I were at the table, I'd make a different decision. If the king really, really cared about the needs of the people, we would not be in this current situation or predicament that we're in. He was pretty effective. Over time, he developed a pretty big following. A number of people came on board, and they started being very vocal in support of Absalom. They were called the Absalom Amigos. And uh, the Absalom Amigos, they had their own little slogan that they would put on the back of bumper stickers. I'm kind of kidding. On, on T-shirts and baseball caps. And the slogan for Absalom's Amigos was, feel the abs. Okay. And so it, it really was catching on. Okay. Now, if some of you out there are looking, to, looking this up on the Internet or Google, you're not going to find it because it's not really there. I'm just kind of kidding. But you kind of get the picture. People are coming on board and he's complaining a lot and, and people are following him. And the thing that's really interesting about Absalom is he had a terrible record. I mean, really, he had, he had such a bad record. And literally, he, he was guilty of murder. He'd been convicted of murder. It was the murder of his oldest brother. And then he was kicked out of the country for, for a time. So he's got a bad record. But if you promise people what they, what they want, if you tell people what they want to hear and you say it long enough and you say it loud enough, people start buying into it and they forget your past and they follow you into the future. And that's Absalom. He's kind of a crummy dude. But David is not innocent in all of this either. David has a tendency to sort of bury character issues. He does it, you know, the story with David and Bathsheba and and then the murder of Bathsheba's husband. That wasn't so good. And uh, he had a tendency to bury character issues with other people. He had done it with Absalom. Absalom, he knew, was trouble in Jerusalem, meeting at the city gates and turning people against him. And, And so David just wanted to bury his head in the sand, just make the problem go away, but just send him to another city. So he sends Absalom down to Hebron, and he continues to do what it is that he's been doing down in Hebron, just turning people against David. And one of the things that was so interesting is that when Absalom's down in Hebron and he's turning people against David, he gets one of the people who are very close to David to turn against David. It's a man of significant influence. The man's name was Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was really close to David and a very trusted person. He was one of David's most trusted political advisors, served him for several years, but the, the problem in the situation was that Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. So Ahithophel knew all about David and Bathsheba and all that other stuff. So he knew about David's character deficiencies. On top of that, I think that Ahithophel, who's the grandfather of Bathsheba, was not very happy about David marrying Bathsheba and then adding another wife and then adding another wife and another concubine and another concubine. And so he sort of suffered in silence until the opportunity presented itself for him to act on growing bitterness and disappointment with David. In any case, Absalom gets Ahithophel on his side, gets some other people of stature on his side, develops an army, and they sweep into Jerusalem, and David has to flee for his life. David, I I think, is exiting along the Jericho Road from Jerusalem, rather famous road, and as he's leaving Jerusalem, moving into some of the most desolate, despairing scenery you can imagine, that's when he prays Psalm 63. So here's the point. David is in a wilderness in many ways. Can you identify with that? Let me just, let me go at it like this. Can you imagine what it's like to be the, the king and to have built up this tremendous kingdom and then almost overnight to have lost it all and you've left behind something very important to you, and you're not sure that you're going to get back. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't know that I can entirely identify with that, but can you imagine this? Can you imagine building up a family business? 
lots of blood, sweat, and tears, lots of sweat equity that goes into that. You've been working on this business, or you built this business for maybe 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and it's not just a business, it's your life. And it's not just your life, it's the life of your family. And it's not just the life of your family, it's the life of your employees and their families and your customers and your investors. And you, you think about all of that. And then, I don't know, over the period of about two weeks, everything shuts down and it's entirely beyond your control. And you're just wondering, am I ever going to be able to reopen? Am I going to go back? What's next? Can you imagine that? Or can you imagine being the king and having everything at your disposal more than you could possibly consume, and it's there in your fridge, and it's there in the garage, and you got everything you need. Then all of a sudden, you're out in the wilderness, and you don't know where your next piece of bread or toilet paper is going to come from. Can you imagine being in a situation, really, where you just don't know what's going to happen next? You, can you imagine losing your job? Or can you imagine going through a severe pay cut? Or can you can you imagine wondering, am I ever going to get back into the church building, or the restaurant, or the factory, or whatever the case may be. Am I ever going to get back into that school? Can you imagine being in that situation? Can you imagine being in David's shoes, and and you know that people want to kill you, and it's not just your son, it's a whole lot of people. Can you imagine thinking, just over the horizon, I can't see it, but just over the horizon, there is this army that's coming for me, and for my family, and for my friends, Can you imagine what that feels like to know an enemy wants to take your life, but you can't see exactly where it is or when it's coming or if it's coming for you? Now, if you've served in the military, you probably know that feeling. But for most of us, I think we could probably imagine an unseen enemy that is advancing across the country, that obviously wants to take everyone out. Will it? Of course not. But who will it out? Who will it take out? I don't know. When is it coming? I don't know. But the threat's there, and the threat's real, and some people are going to be lost. Can you imagine being in that situation? Can you imagine having a son who actually wanted to kill you? I I can't. But some of us could imagine what it's like to have division in the family. Some of you, maybe over the last week or two, you've been thinking how things maybe could have been as you begin to imagine or think through some of the things that you need to own. Maybe you know what it's like to not have a sister who wants to talk to you or a brother that wants to see you or grandchildren that you've been cut off from. Maybe some of you know what it's like to think through a relationship with an ex that went sour and and you're, you're thinking over your life and your relationships and you recognize the loss Can you imagine that? I think most of us in this room probably can. Can you imagine being a king and having a trusted advisor turn his back on you? Well, I'm not sure if you can imagine that, but can you imagine betrayal? Can you imagine a best friend turning on you? Can you imagine the people that you've served? Not just for years, but for decades. Can you imagine people who who, who you've served turning their back on you or actually, more than that, turning their pitchforks against you? If you've never experienced betrayal, you have lived too short of a life or a magically charmed one. Here's what I want you to see. David, in many respects, has experienced on many levels what you're experiencing. 
David's wilderness journey in many respects is very much like yours. David, as he's praying, Psalm 63, is in many respects exactly where you are right now. His journey through the wilderness is something that you should be able to understand very well. Now, here's the question. What does David do? Okay, we're in the wilderness. It's a really bad place. What do I do? Here's what David does. He prays. Okay, everybody prays when they're in trouble. Even people who aren't really sure there's a God will commonly pray. But what does David pray? Actually, what does David not pray? Here's what we notice him not saying to God. He does not say to God, God, give me strength so I can make it through this. God, give me my life back. God, give me some bread, give me some water. He doesn't say any of that. And he doesn't bargain with God. He doesn't say, God, I've been a good person. I've been a dutiful king. Give me my life back. Just give me my life. Get me over this hump. David doesn't pray that way at all. How does he pray? He says, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. He just wants God. Now, this is extraordinary given the circumstances. You say, how how in the world could David just ask for God? He's not asking for anything. He's just saying, show yourself. I'm seeking you. I'm thirsting for you. I'm starving for you. I just want you. How can David do this? Well, here's how, and it's not that hard to understand. In times of deprivation, in times of loss, in times of crisis, sometimes we can see that the things that we valued very, very highly, we probably valued too highly. Some of the things that have been lost, we recognize we were going to lose them at some point anyway. Maybe I gave too much value to those things. And in those real down times when death is staring you in the face, you recognize, here's what I need. I need God. I need God's love. That's what I need. When everything else is stripped away, either you find that God is sufficient in and of himself or You just cry out to God because you recognize that all the things that you've been trusting in were not sufficient. They weren't enough. David goes so far as to say in verse 3, your love is better than life. This is amazing when you consider the circumstances in which David finds himself. Your love is better than life. Now, this is, this is extraordinary on a multitude of levels when David comes to this particular point. But this is experiencing God. This is what it looks like to be infinite with the, to be intimate with the infinite. To actually experience appropriately the transcendence of God. You'll never be intimate with the infinite. You'll never experience the transcendence of God in your life unless or until you come to see that God is all you need. When God is the end in and of himself, then you're experiencing God for who he is. If God is the means to an end, you're not experiencing God for who God is. You're encountering God as if you're encountering the donut lady, but God's not the donut lady. Okay, let me me explain what I mean by this. When I was in South Texas, um, we, Gene and I, planted a church in Laguna Vista, and for a couple of years, the church met in a location um, of a strip mall. And in the strip mall, right next to where the church would meet for worship, there was this donut shop. And so I figured I'm just going to patronize the the business right next door and I'm going to get to know some people there. And, and so I would set up times to meet with people at the donut shop, you know, have some coffee, have some donuts, all the rest. 
Uh, after one week of the donuts, I figured I better just stick with the coffee. But I would continue to meet over there for some time, but I had to stop meeting over there because of the donut lady. And here's what I mean. Every time I was there, she would pull up a chair. And I, and I mean all the time. I, I would go to read. She'd pull up a chair. I'd go with one person, two people, three people. My family wouldn't matter. She'd pull up a chair and she would dominate the conversation. I was trying to meet with other people, but I knew if I stepped into that donut shop, it was going to be all about her. And so I, I couldn't go anymore. And what I wanted to tell her, I never did because I just didn't have the heart to do it, but I, I kind of wanted to tell her, ma'am, I'm not here for you. I'm here for the donuts. I'm here to meet these other people. I, 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 didn't, I didn't come here for you. You're just the door to donut land. Now, that sounds really mean, and it, it kind of is. Sorry, it is. But that's how people relate to God. People will, will show up to God. And this, this happened like when 911 occurred. You might remember this. Everybody got real scared. And then they came to church for a while. And then the next Sunday, they kind of tuned out. Then the next Sunday, they went away. And a year later, people were, people were coming to church less frequently than before 911 ever occurred. You know why? They were treating God like the donut lady. So I'm, I'm afraid. I need this. And then they figured, I don't need this anymore. So I'm going to quit coming to you because I'm tired of it. I just don't need the donuts that you offer. I'm done. People will come to God like the donut lady saying, I, I, I want what you can give me. I want the health. I want the wealth. I want the positive, uplifting feeling for a moment. But I'm not interested in you. And people will come for all kinds of different donuts. I mean, people have different tastes. The sprinkles, the, the chocolate, iced, the you know jelly filled, the bear claws. But people basically come to God frequently because he's just the means to their end. And when their end is met, they're out. They're gone because they didn't show up for him. They showed up for the donuts. David doesn't treat God like the donut lady. Here he is, thirsty, hungry, under attack, lost everything. And here he is in this desert moment on the run. And he cries out to God, God, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. I'm not thirsty for the coffee. I'm not hungry for the donuts. I just want you. And that is what it looks like to experience God for who God is. Because you cannot experience God as the donut lady because the donut lady and God are not one and the same person. The only way you can experience God is to know that he is in and of himself God and all you need. How do you get there? You say, well, I'm not there. Well, listen, you're only going to experience God if you get to the point in your life where you basically say to God, God, knowing you and pleasing you is what I'm after. That's it. That's what I want more than anything else is to know you and please you. The other stuff, yeah, it's nice. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. I'm not seeking after those other things. I'm seeking after you and your righteousness and your kingdom. That's what it is to to experience God. Now, some of us are saying, well, I'm not there. How do I get to that point where I'm just seeking God above all else? There are plenty of clues here in this particular passage. I'm only going to get to one thing today. Tune in next week. There will be more, okay? But there's one thing that I have to get across very seriously. If you want to authentically connect with a transcendent God, if you want to, in a very real, relational way, connect with a God who is above all and then rise above your circumstances, if you want to connect with God in a way where you are taken up to a place of freedom and joy and 
and liberty and peace, then you have to recognize that God has given himself first to you. Or let me read it the way I think I've got it put up on the screen. You need to know God has given you himself, given himself to you before you will ever find your life in him. David starts out by saying, God, you're my God. Now, look, David doesn't start out saying, oh, God, wherever you are, or God, if you're really there. God says, God, you're my God. And everything else in the psalm is predicated on that statement. God, you're my God. Everything else flows from that. You know how extraordinary this is? God, you're my God. My God. That just almost sounds like it's inappropriate to say that. My God. But David says, God, you're my God. You know what David is doing here? David is acting like a son toward a father. I expect to be intimate with the infinite. I expect to experience you. It's my right because you're my God. How can he do this? What, how, what's going on here? David is acting like a son acts toward a father. You just barge right in. One of my favorite pictures, if we can put this up on the screen, is uh, this picture of JFK and underneath the resolute desk is there, there is his son. And JFK, you know, the president of the United States, behind the most powerful desk in the United States, probably in the world, most famous desk. Underneath the desk, there's his son, little John John, probably, probably four years old in that picture. But this is the president. This is the most powerful man in the world. This is the most powerful office in the world. How is the son playing around in that office? Well, I just answered the question. Because he's the son. You get to barge in on dad anytime you want. If Even if he's the most powerful person in the world or the universe, if he's your dad, you get to barge in. David just says, God, you're my God. This is extraordinary. I really, I think about this. Who are the people in your life of whom you can say my? Who are the people in your life that you can attach the personal pronoun my you might be thinking about maybe a husband or a wife and i guess that kind of does work i don't call gina my gina she doesn't call me my Ernest. it's not that she's not my wife and i'm not her husband it's just that we don't do that we haven't renamed one another we don't even have pet names for one another because i think and i think that's actually appropriate i didn't feel like i had the authority to rename her and she had the authority to rename me but we do belong to one another But when I think about my and the possessive toward other people, it applies to my kids. My Nathan, my Shelby, we would say that quite a bit when they were younger, and we'll still say that. My son, my daughter, and we were the ones who named them. The reason Nathan has the name Nathan and the reason Shelby has the name Shelby is because we named them. Actually, the reason Nathan has the name Nathan is because Gina overrid me. I wanted to name him Aristotle Socrates, but that's another story. But at any rate, we did agree. That's their name. We name them. They're ours. You know what they've named us too. You know, my name for Nathan and, and Shelby is Dad. And they call Mom, Mom. In fact, if they call Mom Gina and they call me Ernest, that's no bueno. It's Dad. It's Mom. It's my dad. My, my Mom. My Nathan. My Shelby. That's how it works. It's very natural. So here's the question. Why is it that that seems so natural in the parent-child relationship to use the possessive? My. Here's why. Because when you bring a child into the world and you bring a child into the family, whether by adoption or birth, it doesn't matter. When you bring a child into the family, that child owns you. Your life belongs to them. They have a lien on your time. They have a lien on your life. They possess you. You owe them. It's really true. I was watching this, uh, how long ago? Several years ago. Look who's coming for dinner. Starring um, Audrey Hepburn and Spencer Tracy and Sidney Poitier. 
Sidney Portier plays the role of this black doctor who's engaged to this, this white lady and they want, he wants to go win over her family. So he meets the parents. Look who's coming for dinner. Later on in the movie, uh, Sidney Portier's on-screen dad shows up and tells, tells the son, Sidney Portier, I'm not happy about this. You, you, you owed me better than this. And then he talks about how I worked all these years, long hours in the post office, and I worked my fingers to the bone, and I skipped all these perks, and how could you do this to me? And at this point, Sidney Portier's character leans into his dad. And Sidney Portier, if you've never seen him, Sidney Portier is like uh, Denzel Washington before Denzel Washington, man, he just hammers his dad. And he says, Dad, everything you've ever done for me, you owe me. Everything you've ever done, you owed me because you're my father. You've never done anything for me that you ever did that you didn't owe me because you brought me into this world. From the moment you brought me into this world, you were obligated to me because you're my father. And it's like, woo! You know, I still get chills just thinking about this particular scene. And he's right. My kids have a lean on me. They have a lean on my life. They have a lean on my time. When Gene and I brought them into the world, we expected we were going to owe them food and clothing and shelter. And sometimes parents can't do that. It breaks their hearts. And if you've given your kids food and clothing and shelter and love and protection, you're not special. I'm just saying you're just doing what you're supposed to do as a parent. And deep down inside, you know, that's exactly right. They possess you. And, and, and we owe them transportation and we'd owe them, you know, a certain amount of entertainment and we've owed them spiritual direction and love. We owed our kids everything when we brought them into our family. And we're not keeping tabs. When, when Nathan and Shelby turn 29 and move out of the house, we're not going to give them, you know, the bill. Hey, you owe us $843,000 because, you know, this was just a loan. No, we owe our kids. That David says, God, you're my God, is absolutely mind-blowing because you cannot think of any other religion or belief system in the whole world where somebody can say, this is my God. Think about Muslims. You don't have anybody in Islam that says, this is my Allah. Allah doesn't give himself wholeheartedly without reservation to people. He doesn't, he doesn't make himself obliged to anyone. You can't say, my Allah. They don't say that. No way. That almost sounds blasphemous. You go to Eastern religions. You can look at the, you know, Pali Canon or the Bhagavad Gita. You go into Buddhism or Hinduism or any other Eastern religion. You can never say, this is my also. This is, you know, my force. Only one place can you go to say, my God. Only one place are you ever going to find a God who gives himself wholeheartedly, without reservation, totally, to his people. It's in the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of David, the God of Jesus, gives himself unreservedly to his people. David says, God, you're my God is absolutely astounding. It's amazing. And because God has given himself to David, David can expect intimacy with the infinite. He can expect to authentically experience the transcendent. He can expect it, and he should, because he's the father. Of course, Jesus goes on and he makes plain a lot of the things that were only foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And David, of course, is a member of the covenant community of God before Christ ever came. But the things that happened in the Old Testament were just shadows of what was coming. The laws and the, and the sacrificial system and the stories, they were only shadows of the reality that came in Christ. And those of us who stand on this side of Jesus Christ know, especially as we come to the table, we have a God 
who gave himself without reservation. And again, why is this so important? Well, this is so important because you'll never find your life holy in God until you see that God has first given himself holy to you. We love him because he first loved us, the Bible explains. He went first. And this is what blows us away as Christians so frequently, and that is the reality that that God would look at me and that God would look at you. And he would say, your life is everything to me. And when you're a father or a mother and you look at your children, you recognize that feeling. You think about what would happen next if it was me or them 100% of the time. I'm saying, you know, virus, take me. Not my kids. That is the father's heart toward you. And that's why he sent the son, Jesus Christ. I'm just going to give you the New Testament theology in a nutshell. Jesus Christ came and he lived the life you should have lived and he died the death you should have died. He died on the cross for you. So that when you receive what it is that Jesus did for you, his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness gets credited to your account. And that means not only did you get your bill paid in full, but you're in all the way in and you're loved as if God loves his own son. It's not just that you got forgiven, it's just that you got received. God has in the son made himself obligated to us. And so now when you receive Jesus Christ as your savior and Lord, when he is in your life, the father looks on you and says, I owe you my heart. I, I owe you every bit of the honor and every bit of the dignity and every bit of the welcome and every bit of the love that I owe my only begotten son that he deserves because you're in him. You're covered by what it is that he has done. You're in the family now. And when you're in the family, God never turns his back on you because what kind of person would do that? I know that there's some crummy parents in the world, but God is not one of them. And when we come to the table and we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, we remember this is the father's heart. He gives himself unreservedly to us. And I want you to be convinced, if you're not convinced already, that that God can be your God, that he can become your God when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Here's what it says over in Galatians. We're going to finish with this. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Paul says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. When you become a child of God, when you become a son of God and, and you're in the family, you can you can just cry out to God that he's your God and not just your God, that he's your father. Look, goes on a little bit further in verse 6 of chapter 4. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. In Christ, all that is God's is yours. All that was Christ is yours. And you can call out to God, not just you're my God, not just you're my, my father, but you're like my daddy. And, and you're going to have that relationship for all eternity and nothing's going to change that. Why? Because God made himself obligated to you in the gift of the son. And he wanted to be obligated to you because he wants to call you his, but he also wants you to call him yours. This is what God is passionate for. Let me tell you something, you're just not gonna, you're not gonna know how good God is until you experience Him as the end in and of Himself. And you're never gonna experience Him as the end in and of Himself until you see that in many respects, you're the one 
that God's been after like that. In just a moment, we're going to pray, and after we pray, we're going to partake of these elements together. The juice represents the spilled blood of Christ. The bread represents the body that was broken on your behalf. But here's my question to you. Do you, do you see that God has given himself to you? Do you believe that God has given himself to you in the Son? Then here's the invitation, and you can respond to the invitation right where you are. Eat the bread, drink the juice, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he will meet you right where you are. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. We thank you that in our wilderness moments, maybe we should have a little more clarity that these other things that we thought were so important that we thought we couldn't live without, we can. And and whether we feel that way or not, we recognize that all those things eventually are going to be taken away from us. Uh, you know, apparently David's life would end about less than a decade from the time he give, gives us Psalm 63. All of these things eventually disappear. Everything at some point or another, it fades away. But not your love, not you. Bring us to our senses. Help us to recognize your supreme significance Grant us in this moment of downtime and even despair the recognition that we can turn to you, we can call out to you as our God because you have made yourself available to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we partake of the elements together, as we remember the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, as we remember you giving yourself unreservedly for us, I pray, Lord, that we would not just be inspired to give ourselves to you in return, but that we would actually thirst for you, that we would hunger for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Lord, make us thirsty. Make us hungry. And fill us with your presence in this time of remembrance. And we pray that in Jesus Christ's blessed holy name. Amen.